Hello and welcome to A Sideways Life. I am Al. And I'm Leanne. And by now you should know that we're a married couple who are digital nomads and we've been traveling Europe and the world since about 2013. Now, we've come across some really, really interesting people on our journeys, but uh, we're talking to a couple here who are a gay couple from... Are they from Seattle? They are. Yep, and uh, they left America in 2017. Yep. And uh, and they now travel the world and in a slightly different way because it's quite interesting because we are... Um, we're in, well, I'm in my 40s, Leanne's in the 30s. Um, a lot of people think the digital nomads are sort of 1920 in Thailand wearing mm. string vests and dancing on beaches till 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. And these guys are a little bit older than us. So it's really interesting to see how they approach the idea of being a digital nomad. And there's some really good hacks as well, which you come up in this. Do you remember them talking about the repositioning cruises? Yes. Oh. Who knew that was a thing? You're going to like this. If you, yeah. If you, yeah. If you travel at all and you like saving money, which let's be honest, who doesn't? Who doesn't? Then you're going to see, you're going to hear a great hack, maybe about 10 minutes in. This one runs a little bit longer than normal because these guys are so interesting. We just couldn't stop talking to them. Um, and also we had to, uh, we had to reschedule quite a few times, didn't we? Oh, we did. And Michael and Brent, if you're listening, we're so sorry for that. We just moved into a new house. Our internet hadn't yet been upgraded. I think we must have, it must have been the third time that we actually spoke to them and we managed to record the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, thank you for your patience with this. But when we spoke to them, we're so glad we made it happen because so many interesting stories. Um, and like I said, just looking at, at things a bit differently, not breaking away from that stereotype of a, a digital nomad, um, which yeah, we really didn't, really enjoyed. Some great stories in there as well. Um, they have very cool careers, novelists, mm. screenwriters. Um, they have some activists. They have some amazing connections with the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and just a great story. So we're going to keep this intro short mm-hmm. um, so we can give all, all our lovely time to, to Brent and Michael because they're far more interesting than we are, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Well, in that case then, should we, uh, should we go and meet Brent and Michael? Yeah, press play on. Hello and welcome to a Sideways Live podcast. Today we have some absolutely brilliant guests lined up for you. We're talking to Michael and Brent. They are a gay digital nomad couple who in 2017 sold their house in Seattle to travel the world. To date, they have visited 44 countries, amassed a loyal following on both their blog and Instagram, and been featured in CBS Sunday Morning, Forbes and the New York Times. They also have a regular column about their travels at LGBTQ Nation. Today we find them in Istanbul, Turkey. Please welcome to the podcast, Michael and Brent. Hi. Thank you for having us. It's great to be here. Hello. Nice to meet you both. You too. Thank you so much for for giving us your time. And you've been busy in in Istanbul exploring. So, I mean, why don't we we just start right at the beginning? Um, I mean, Michael, what was it that inspired you to to pack everything up and and start traveling? Well, we'd always talked about traveling, but the as, as writers, we would call it the inciting event. The thing that really got us going was literally the night Donald Trump got elected. We had been at an election party um, with some of our best friends, and very quickly it became clear something was something really bad was going to be happening from our point of view. And we decided we couldn't hang out at the party any longer. Everybody wanted to go home. So we hopped in the car and headed home, and we weren't more than 10 minutes on the freeway when Brett looked at me and said... Uh, I think we should sell the house and leave the country. Why don't we sell the house and leave the country? <laughs> Literally, no exaggeration. And Michael thought about it for about 10 seconds. And then, like, you know, we were deciding what movie to see that weekend. He said, okay, let's do it. And, of course, our <laughs> friends thought we were crazy. Um, 
And but within you know two months, we'd sold our house and moved into a smaller apartment, and we're getting everything ready. And and then we just went from there. And it's funny because you know we'd always talked about traveling, you know, in the future at some point. You know, let's take a year off and travel. Or you know, we both are writers; we work remotely; we can live anywhere. So let's live overseas. And I think you know, we talked about it a lot. But sometimes I ask myself if, if it hadn't been for the election of Donald Trump, would we have done it? And I'm not. Sure, we would have. So as horrible as that was and is for the world, it ended up being kind of a positive thing for us, which is sort of a sacrilegious thing to say, I guess. We had a similar experience, didn't we? Mm. We, we also started full-time traveling in 2017, and that was after the Brexit vote. The UK voted to leave, and we were devastated as as, as you were and, and just thought that was the time to take advantage of our situation while we could mm -hmm. so it's funny how something like that can just change the entire course of of your life it's funny because when it happened i felt this sense of powerlessness like i'd been a nervous wreck all year long about the election and the really you know i volunteered and i voted and i contributed money but there wasn't a lot i could do and then once it was over there was really nothing i could do because i you know the election was over and i'm one could argue a bit of a control freak and I felt like I needed to do something. And this gave me a sense of control. You know, it's like we are, we are all choosing to be more or less wherever we are at any moment in time. And we're all choosing to be residents of the country that we're in, practically speaking. And so for me, it worked to give myself the power. It's like I can choose to leave a country that I think is making a seriously massive error. And, and it worked. It gave me a sense of control over my own life. And I think it also gave me a little bit of perspective about America. It gave me a bigger picture about, you know, the world is not America. The world is bigger than just America. And my life is bigger than just my life in America. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think the one advantage to, I suppose, I don't really say advantage, but to the COVID situation is it has sort of removed some of the parochial thinking that some people have had that, you know, this is it. And now it broadened their, their horizons a little bit, particularly with Zoom. You can now Zoom anyone in the world. So you can say, well, I can just get in my car and drive to Italy and work from Italy because I've been Zooming everyone from London when I lived in Manchester. So uh, it just gives that opportunity, which I think is pretty, pretty cool. And by the way, did you say you were in Istanbul right now? Right. We're in Istanbul, Turkey. We've been here about three weeks. We had been living um, when COVID started, we were living in Mexico City, and we decided as things were unfolding, we thought, yeah, this is looking pretty serious. So we should probably go back to the state. So we went back to the states to see how things were going to play out. And we stayed with a really good digital nomad friend uh, in Austin, Texas. She'd actually been with us in Mexico City. And we all moved back to the states together. And we stayed with her for about three months. And then, you know, you don't want to overstay your welcome. So we decided to head back up to the Pacific Northwest, originally from Seattle, and we bopped around the U.S. for about six months doing house sitting, um, some Airbnb, uh, just trying to figure things out, watch where the world was going. And after about six months, we decided we just couldn't take any more of the United States. And it was heading into the fall. And it seemed clear America wasn't going to do well with COVID. They were not going to, people weren't wearing the masks enough. They just weren't taking the social distancing seriously. And it was getting worse and worse. We thought, well, it doesn't feel like it's going to be any worse in, in Mexico, um, and we can live there for considerably less money and, frankly, feel happier. Mm. So we went back to Mexico, and we spent seven the last seven months there until we were able to get vaccinated. And once we got vaccinated, um, we made the decision to start traveling again. We did our research. 
Um, wanted to make sure we were, you know, that the, the scientific evidence was pretty clear that even vaccinated people couldn't pass it on. Um, we were tested very carefully before we came to Turkey. So yeah, we've been here in Istanbul about three weeks. We're living in Istanbul. We're exploring different cultures. We're meeting local people and having lots of wonderful dinners and exploring new cuisine, cuisines and all of that. But it's interesting in 2021, as you said, everything, everybody's so connected. And if you have a smartphone in your hand, it's literally impossible to be lost in 2021, mm. assuming you haven't run, your battery hasn't run out. And it's impossible, <laughs> you know, to not get a hotel, not be able to get a hotel or not be able to get a cab, um, not be able to speak a language. You know, you've got Google, Google Translate. And so it is interesting. I, as I said before, I'm sort of the less adventurous of the two of us. I don't see myself as a big risk taker, but it doesn't feel like we're taking that much of a risk. We talk about this a lot that what would it have been like 20 years ago before all these technological advances? What would travel have been like? It would have been really strange. But I suppose that even at the time, you know, it, it, travel for me is all about making a series of mental leaps. You arrive at a new destination. Something is weird and uncomfortable. You don't understand how it works. And then you do. And then suddenly it's not weird and uncomfortable. I, I, somebody explained it to me that the first time you encounter something, it is unfamiliar. The second time you encounter something, it is familiar because you, you encountered it once before. And then the third time, you actually feel comfortable. And that's literally about how long it takes for a new city or a new place to feel like home. Like we get there, it's a little weird, it's a little uncomfortable. Oh, oh, I know this street. And then the third time it's like, oh, we're home. Okay, I know all this stuff. And then you start to feel sort of <laughs> annoyingly like a local, you know, you know, you have your fruit and veg stand and you know this and that. And, and it's just interesting how quickly we get into the swing of things. We like to think that we're, a little bit trailblazery amongst our age group, maybe a little bit. Yeah, there I think are, that's true. There are mm -hmm. a lot of people, we're in our 50s. I think there are a lot of people in their 40s and 50s who think this is something that only young people can do, that they're, you know, you're going to have to live out of your, your backpack and live in, in hostels. And you can do that if you want. And in fact, we did just downsize to backpacks ourselves. But we're not living in hostels. We're not living like we're in our 20s. We're, we're also very, very quick because this is such a huge stereotype about nomading. We're very, very, very quick to acknowledge that we have massive privilege being Americans, being from Western Europe. We're able to do things that most of the world is not. And traveling has humbled us in that in a, in a way that, you know, just we we just had tea with a Turkish friend and he was telling us that he didn't go to school. And when he was eight years old, he had a job. And and, you know, I spoke to another Turkish friend in our building um, yesterday, and he's never left Turkey. And so we recognize we are the result of massive privilege. But we also feel like by talking about that and by traveling the world and by talking, communicating, we are creating bridges. Um, you know, we have privileges no matter what, just by existing because we're Americans. I don't think we have more privilege because we're nomads. It's, sometimes it feels like we're sort of paying it back because we're able to live and shop locally and get to know local people and spend some of that American cash in these countries that are very, very happy to have us here. So yeah. I want to ask you, um, I want to ask you, Brett, where, where would you say is your favorite place that you've traveled in the world? I've got a big long list here of all the ones you've gone to, but what's your favorite? Brett? Well, we, I really liked Vietnam. It's funny, we, we always, you imagine a place before you go someplace, and it is either, it's usually not at all like what you imagine, but there have been two countries that were exactly like we imagined, Switzerland and Vietnam. In Vietnam, we lived in some rice right. fields, and it was so beautiful. And of course, there were many things that we didn't expect. In many ways, it, it wasn't what we had, had expected. But I really liked Vietnam. It just felt so iconic. It was so exactly like what Vietnam um, 
you know, would have looked like. But honestly, when I think about our favorite destinations, I think about the people. I feel about I, I think about the friends mm-hmm. we met or the people we met. And I I feel fondness for the people more than any location. What about you, Michael? Well, I would feel I, I would say that it's, it's, it would be a tie right now. Switzerland, we only spent a month there. But the Swiss Alps, while they were exactly what I expected them to be, they also felt like more than I expected them to be. They were so beautiful and so breathtaking. And I just so loved being way up in those mountains and spending so much time outside and hiking um, that I just really connected with that destination. Frankly, I also came to some personal decisions and realizations about my career there uh, that made that a special place too. I didn't used to cite Vietnam as one of my favorite places. Brent and I are frequently discussing this issue and sort of creating our list and mulling it over. And I was thinking about Vietnam the other day and I realized I really did like Vietnam because it was so different from so many of the other places mm. we've been. Thailand was a great destination, but we were in a very Western-friendly resort. So you saw you saw a lot of Thai people, but you saw a lot of Northern Europeans and some Americans there. So it didn't feel challenging in any way. Most of the places we've been have been like that. They've been really interesting um, and exciting and beautiful things to see but I haven't really felt out of my element. Vietnam, we lived in Hoi An, which is somewhat of a touristy town, but it's more for Chinese, and we were on the outskirts of town. I would go to shop in the local market, uh, which is an outdoor market on the streets with you know the, the chickens and the stalls and you know everything you sort of think of when you think of um, that part of Vietnam. And I'm a six foot one white guy, and I towered over everybody, and I didn't see anybody else <laughs> um, any other, any other, you know, white Europeans or we were real around. novelties there. Yeah. We were pretty much novelties, and you know, not nearly as many people spoke the language, and so I felt like I was somewhere truly different and interesting and and challenging in a good way. It's the people we meet and the relationships we've made. It's the food that would be number two, the cuisine <laughs> that you discover. Then it's the the beauty, the scenic beauty, and the cultures, and but that's part of the people. And then fourth would be like the tourist destinations. That's like the least interesting part of our life. Mm-hmm. And, and in that respect, I think it's different than being on holiday. That's the difference between what we do and being on holiday or being on vacation. Mm-hmm. And tell us a bit, because I was reading on on um, your blog, Michael, that you travel uh, quite differently. I read that you often travel by boat when you, you do long, long distance. Is <laughs> we, that, I mean, really? I've never, I don't think I've heard of anyone who's done it like that before. We do. We we stumbled onto this little uh, digital nomad hack, I guess we would call it, in that uh, there are something called repositioning cruises at the end of the seasons. You know, there's the, there's the Caribbean cruise season, there's the Alaska cruise season, and there's the European cruise season. And at the end of those seasons, those boats return to where their next season is going to be. So there are these things called repositioning cruises, and you can often get them at a discounted rate. And so we will sort of bundle these tours together. We'll do like a 20-day European Mediterranean cruise, but then we'll do the repositioning cruise back to the United States. And we've worked it out when, since we're not paying rent anywhere and we don't have an apartment or we don't have a house we're paying a mortgage on, when you run the numbers for the transportation the housing, the food, and the entertainment, it turns out to be pretty affordable. It's a pretty affordable way to move between continents. It's cheaper than our than our lives, our day-to-day lives back in Seattle, definitely. It's not as cheap as living in a, you know, cheap by Western standards country. But and you know, there's so much snobbery among 
I mean, nomads are great. I love nomads, but they can be snobs about cruise ships. You know, the idea is, well, that's not real travel. It's so easy. And I'm like, well, yeah, but what's wrong with that? And, and I mean, you know, we end up stopping in ports of call. Like I've never been to Santorini, Greece, and it's one of the most spectacular places I've ever been, especially from the middle of the caldera, you know, the ship sails into the middle of the caldera at night and then you wake up and you're surrounded. I don't know if you've been to Santorini, but it's the, the island is is the ring at the top of an undersea volcano and the little towns cling to the side of the cliffs looking into the caldera. And it was spectacular. And, and you know, we, we, we tend to gravitate toward meeting crew members, not the other passengers, because it's a white, you know, sort of Republican American crowd. It's not really our crowd, but we usually get to know crew members and, you know, we're on the boat so long and, and it's, you know, great white, white tablecloth dining for for a month it works for us you know i, I don't i'm not going to judge other people even though sometimes people judge us <laughs> it's also an opportunity for us to get a lot of work done especially on the transatlantic crossing exactly I mean, well you know other people will be lounging around the pool i'm not a pool person we'll find a quiet room somewhere and, and catch up on our work we frankly we've got a memoir hopefully coming out in the next year or two and we wrote a good chunk of it while crossing the Atlantic on a cruise ship. It's a, it's a media detox. You know, we don't pay for the internet package, so we don't have media for a month. Um, and, you know, it, it works for us. It's, it's working for me. It sounds amazing. <laughs> it's also, you know, in terms of the carbon footprint, we've, we've researched this and, and the carbon mm-hmm. footprint. The worst part of the the life the, the life with Nomad is it's the airfare. It's the airfare. It's the carbon mm-hmm. footprint of the airplane. And so you eliminate that. You know, we do these sea crossings. You can also cross via freight, or there are other ways to do it. And then they have it. Some of our friends have. There are other ways to do it. Uh, and, and, you know, you reduce your carbon footprint, too. So it's win-win. So tell me, I'm, I was reading in some of the research Dan was doing on uh, on you guys. I was reading that uh, there's something to do with a trans- something in common with a transatlantic flight and an apartment in Bulgaria. There's <laughs> a story behind that. <laughs> well, yeah, we have this problem with fire. When we were in Bulgaria... <laughs> Uh, you know, we just finished making breakfast one morning and, you know, we smelled smoke and we thought, you know, we'd left something in the toaster and wait a minute, we didn't even plug in the toaster. We haven't plugged in the toaster yet. And then it's like, well, is somebody burning garbage? And we're like, you know, it was close the window, you know, somebody's burning garbage. And then the smell smelled worse. And we're like, well, okay. And then we're thinking, is there, is there, is there a fire in our apartment? And it was a pretty big apartment. Um, and we're going through the different rooms. And finally, in the, one of the back bath, bathrooms, I opened the door. And, you know, it had been smoldering, the wiring in the hot water tank had been smoldering, deprived of oxygen, and it flared up in my face, and the bathroom was on mm-hmm. fire, and then smoke flooded the apartment. And, you know, because it's Bulgaria, um, pros and cons of being a nomad, they don't necessarily have smoke detectors or fire alarms, and, mm-hmm. and you know, we're yelling fire, and of course, I didn't, I didn't know the Bulgarian word for fire, um, <laughs> and finally, we texted our landlord, who said, turn off your, your electricity, um, and then he called the fire department and they were there, but it was, it was terrifying. And then, and then a year later, Michael, why don't you see what happened? We were flying, we were headed back to Europe and we were flying from uh, New York to London and then on to Switzerland. It's where our, our Swiss month. And we were about 30 minutes out of New York when, um, started to smell something burning in the cabin of the airplane. And I'm a former flight attendant. I was a flight attendant in my younger days. And I thought it was, I thought, oh, the flight attendants have, have burned the meals, you know, that, that happens, no big deal. Um, but the smell didn't go away and it started to get a little hazy. And then the captain came on and said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're making an emergency landing. We're diverting to Boston. Uh, we'll be on the ground in 30 minutes. At which point the flight attendants, um, wearing big silvery head coverings came rushing down 
the aisle of the plane. We were in coach because um, we don't travel in first class, unfortunately. And they were running up to first class. And they went up there and they were going about their business. And they were very calm. And passengers, everybody stayed calm. The air wasn't too bad. It was, it was hazy. So we landed on the ground um, 30 minutes later in, in Switzerland. Well, I mean, Michael's or, like, Michael's being a flight attendant. I'm looking to him for guidance. And, and he's like, it's fine. There's no, nothing going on, nothing wrong. Um, and I'm like, okay, all right, if he says so. But you should probably put on your shoes in case we need to make an emergency evacuation. I'm like, wait a minute. I thought you said I was fine. First, you tell me that they just burned dinner. And then now you're telling me to put on my shoes for an emergency evacuation. Yeah, then there were there were fire trucks on the yeah, car. Yeah, we landed. Line. And there were probably 10 fire trucks. And they had to stay on board the plane. There was a woman having a panic attack. And they, they got her off very quickly. And the captain came back. And he said uh, what had happened was a passenger's uh, lithium battery had been recharging. They plugged it into the airplane seat. And then it had slipped down. Uh, between the seat cushions and overheated. And this is why they tell you you're not supposed to check lithium batteries because these things can get seriously hot. Mm. And it got so hot that even with the fire retardant materials, See. that seat caught on fire. And we walked by that seat when we got off the airplane and that seat was reduced to the metal frame. And I have so many questions mm. about this. It's you'd think, as Michael said, everything on a plane would be fire retardant. Well, then how can an entire seat be reduced to nothing because I, it's called retardant. Not <laughs> well, not, but I mean, from a battery. From a battery, I was surprised that a battery could do that too. And honestly, my heart. I'm not the most confident flyer. My heart is beating yeah. quite heavily right now. <laughs> it was. Well, let me let me tell you. I mean, as a former flight attendant, you're you're much much more likely to have something bad happen to you driving to the airport than you are once you're on that airplane. So Brent, tell me, you've obviously been doing this for a little while now. What do you find or what do you both find tough about living life on your own terms? Well, it's funny because there is, we just some of this this afternoon, there is something wrong with every apartment, every Airbnb, every booking.com, every hotel room. There's something annoying. Like in, in Mexico, you know, the, the plumbing is fa- famously temperamental and our, it was the most sensitive hot water. I, it's like, it was insane. It had to be so precise. It would take, you know, two minutes to get the hot water. And then I would shower and I would say, Michael, you know, not, I would not turn off the water because it was so hard to get it exactly right. There's something annoying about And here, um, you know, we have a little tiny fridge and we have a, we don't have a full kitchen. And the shower leaks. And the shower leaks. Yeah, it needs to be silicone in the shower. And it's like, on one hand, it's annoying. And, you know, beds. We don't have a consistent bed. Um, every bed is different. Some beds are fabulous, but more often than not, the beds are kind of crappy or they're small. But beds in, in Europe tend to be smaller than beds in America anyway, and Michael's pretty big. And, and so there's always something. But it's funny how we don't really think about it. I think that's for two reasons. I think it's because no matter what it is, we only have to be here for a month or two or three. You know, it's, it's not like a chronic thing. And sometimes we can actually fix it. Sometimes we can, you know, fix the problem and then it goes away or the landlord will fix it. Um, and the second thing is, it's just worth it because we're in freaking Istanbul. You know, we go outside our door and, and we're in this incredibly vibrant, wonderful place. And I swear to God, within 100 meters, there are at least 100 sidewalk cafes um, within 100 meters. Uh, and there are all these charming little alleys and there's live music at three places on our alley. But they all stop at 9 p.m. It's like, I swear to God, it's like Camelot. You know, it's like the perfect place because <laughs> when we had tea with this fellow today, he said, yeah, this street. We made an agreement they can have live music, but it has to stop at 9 p.m. Where, where does this happen? I, I mean, people are considerate. And, you know, we get a special uh, discount from all the restaurants on a particular street. And, and so it's like 
yeah, there are annoyances, but whereas they used to loom large in our lives back in Seattle, they would sort of haunt you. Now I barely even notice them because I think the rest of it is so much richer and so much more interesting. And because we're going to leave and because nothing is, you know, maybe that's true of all of life. You know, nothing is permanent. We're all going to leave <laughs> one day or another. And yet we spend so much time sweating the small stuff, the stuff that really doesn't matter. We moved into this apartment and we, there's a little balcony looking down into the alley and there's this beautiful lush gable of uh, grapevines and the grapes are not ripe. And as we moved in, I said, okay, we need to stay at least as long, at least until the grapes are ripe and we can taste the grapes in the sun because I can already see the, <laughs> the grapes are forming. And it's like, that is a good way to live. It's like you, you, hear, you are here as long as the grapes are ripening. Once the grapes are ripe, it's time to move on to the next vineyard. And that's, that's our life. And it sounds romantic, but it is romantic. You know what I mean? It, it is romantic what we do, the way we live. And how have you both found that transition in, in terms of your work? Because like you said, you know, when you traditionally think about digital nomads, they tend to be, um, you know, in their, in their early 20s. I mean, you obviously had established careers. How did you find that transition? Yeah, it was incredibly easy because basically the way we work is we sit in our apartment and work on our projects and communicate with uh, maybe it's an editor, or maybe it's a, a website I'm working for, um, whatever the, the person is, we just communicate with them just like we would have back in Seattle. It really makes almost no difference where we're at. So um, there really hasn't been any kind of roadblock. I think it's actually been inspiring for our writing. It's actually helped us in terms of I've transitioned more into doing travel writing because of our of our life on the road. And Brent has actually been focused. Well, we wrote a memoir together about our first two years of travel and then Brent has been inspired to turn our adventures into uh, some screenplays. Why don't you talk about that? Yeah, I've got a couple of screenplays. One about, you know, the experience of living in an Airbnb and the people you meet. Uh, it, it's a thriller. You know, you don't know these people you meet. So that's sort of a dark turn. But then I also wrote a sort of a romantic comedy called Nomads um, that is um, a sort of eat, pray, love and four weddings and a funeral where a woman is traveling the world and her path keeps intersecting with one guy and the circumstances force them apart until until they don't and and that sort of captures the romantic side of it and that um hopefully fingers crossed will will be out on paramount plus in 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 a couple of years that way um, but anyway so it's actually been really um amazing it's That's been really cool it's been uh, yeah uh, i mean fingers crossed it's not it's not definite yet but um but uh, it, but it looks good, so hopefully. Um, but yeah, it's been really, you know, I mean, the, the well had been sort of empty before, the artistic well, and now all of these rich experiences that we keep having, it's like, I want to write about that. There's now there's way more to write about than we have time to actually write it, which is great. That's a good place for a writer to be. And I think COVID has shown a lot of both employees and employers that a lot of work can be done remotely. A lot of things we didn't think could, a lot of employers who didn't trust employees to do it now have no choice but to trust them. And we've now seen, they've now seen that it can work. So we're hoping that more people um, are going to take advantage of this. And partly that's one of the messages we're trying to get out there is to be thinking about this and take advantage of it if you can. So you mentioned, you were mentioning before about um, how you've, um, you know, you've, you've had an education over the last few years and, in kind of the, the privilege that we experience as, as Americans, as, as British. 
I mean, I, I also read in your blog as well that you've you had a quite an education around how differently LGBTQ plus people are treated around the world. Can you tell us a bit more about your experiences in, in that sense? Yeah, I mean, we were well aware before we left that not every country, you know, treats their their gay citizens, their LGBTQ citizens the same way as America or Britain or other Western European countries. But what we didn't know what we assumed was the people in those countries would feel the same way we did about their circumstances. And we went to Georgia, for instance, which is considered to be one of the most homophobic countries um, in Europe. And legally it's not, um, they have a lot of legal protections, but culturally because of the power of the church, it is pretty discriminatory. And yet when you meet the local gay community and talk to them, they don't necessarily see their lives the same way. They don't look at themselves as, as being victims and that they're incredibly discriminated against. They're not naive. I mean, they know their situation isn't ideal, but they also know that this is their culture and how they fit in and how to navigate it and how to still be happy in it. Um, and that was interesting to us to go in there with the assumption that they were going to understand how oppressed they were and then to realize, in fact, well, no, we don't entirely view it that way. And we don't view ourselves as going in and trying to educate and, and save people. We want to go. And the only kind of thing we want to do that's education-wise necessarily is live our lives as, a, as an openly gay couple and let them see that and make of, of that what they will. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, you, you meet people and you realize, you know, you have attitudes about what oppression is and you apply your sort of American perspective and you realize oh, wait a minute, traditional traditions and traditional families have some value. These people, you know, it's important to these people. And first of all, I think it is also true that Western civilization, Western Europe and America has promulgated ideas that have spread around the globe about feminism and about equality and really positive things that have infiltrated, especially young people on social media all over the world or in tap. And so they're not feeling the shame and isolation that maybe I felt when I was a kid, when I was younger, they don't feel that. They're, so, so they're, they're connected to sort of a greater movement, which is really cool and really positive. But at the same time, they've sort of educated me in that I think, well, why don't you just come out? Why don't you just, how, what do you mean your family doesn't accept you? That's outrageous. You should just reject your family. And now it's like, okay, I've been humbled. And it's like, that's way, way, way too simplistic. And it's way, way, way too arrogant. And you know, now I understand that traditional families can, in fact, be really rich, wonderful things that, you know, there's the crazy eccentric aunt that will support you. And, you know, yeah, maybe your your mom isn't understanding, but maybe your dad will pull you aside and say this and that. And maybe it's important, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a country that doesn't have a traditional social system, that's what the family does. And so, you know, it's it's the responsibility, especially young men to to f support other people financially and young women have responsibilities too. And, you know, in a lot of ways it's sexist and a lot of ways it's homophobic, but it, it performs a function. It's like, I understand that, well, what's more important that this person come out and be out and proud or this person starve? Well, you know, it's complicated. Like everything in life, it's complicated. And it's humbling for me to think I know the answers to this country's problems. And so now our, you know, we approach all this much more humbly. It's like, okay, tell me what's going, you tell me, you tell me about your life. Mm -hmm. And what what do you want from me? Is there a way I can help you? Is there is but I'm not going to come in and, and judge you because you're not living according to my values, um, which is, a, is sort of the height of American arrogance and hypocrisy. You know, we don't do that. I don't. I'd like to think we never did it, but now we really don't do it because we understand everybody is on a different path in life. 
everybody's circumstances are different and complicated. And really, I think the key is communication and connection and really Mm -hmm. connecting on a human level. And it's like, here's my story. I love Michael. We are traveling the world together. You know, this is how we live our life. But we're able to do that because of American privilege. What's your story? I'm really interested. I'm not going to judge you because your your journey is your own. But I want to know your story. And tell me, because frankly, I know my story. I don't know. Your story is what interests me. So well, I'll, I'll add two things to that. One, in the, in the LGBTQ community, we've always said every individual's coming out journey is different. And I think the same thing is true of every country. Every country's evolution towards uh, equality is going to be different. And I would also, the second thing I would add is that we do try and use our platform to promote those voices that are working for change in the country they want. In, in Georgia, we got to know um, a fellow named Yorgi Tabagari, who is the founder of something called Tbilisi Pride. He's the leading uh, uh, equality rights advocate in, in Georgia. And we interviewed him and we wrote about him on our blog and our website. Um, so we, you know, we do try and use the platform that we have to affect a positive change in the way that Brent was just saying that that works for them the way they think it should be done. Even in the case of Yorgi, though, we're like, what do you want Absolutely. from us? Do you would it be helpful right now? for us to publicize you and your issue? Or should we wait? Because everything is really delicate and sensitive and you really don't know. This is, you know, Americans are probably the least informed uh, country in the world about other countries. And yet they think, they act like they they know everything. And it's just not true. It's like, listen to the local people. What do the local people want us to do? And do they want us to boycott us, boycott the country? Would that be helpful? Don't just you know, don't just go off half cocked, which is, you know, social media. That's what everybody does. They, they think one size fits all and one size does not fit all, which is what is so wonderful about the world. Well, and boycotting a country, unless you do something positive to affect change from where you're, you're staying at, doesn't do anything to help that country. Just staying away, um, that's not going to cause any change. Whereas you could come and connect with the local gay community like we try and do and make a change that way. So boycotts just seem kind of simplistic unless they're paired with something positive. So much of this, and I'm sure it's the same for you folks. I take so many of these issues personally in a way I didn't before because it is personal. It's not abstract for me anymore. It's like when we're talking about a crackdown in a particular country, I have a friend there and it's like, or when somebody says somebody, you know, well, you know, you should boycott Turkey because of the Armenian situation. It's like, well, I have friends here. And it's like, that's not help. You know, it's everything is complicated. And I do take it personally when people talk about things they don't know anything about because it affects me. It affects my friends. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, if anyone is listening from from the community who are perhaps feeling a bit unsure, or apprehensive or don't know what to expect in, in terms of, of living this kind of lifestyle, what would you say to them? Is there any way you direct them to, to, to find out more information about well, that's a really, places? It's a really good question. I mean, it's true of, it's true of gender. It's true of race. It's true of sexual orientation. It's true of gender expression. You know, that every experience is going to be different. And there are people maneuvering their way through this lifestyle from all those different points of view. And it, it, I wouldn't presume to speak for them, but I, I guess I would say, I think as a general rule, I think it is, my experience is most people are open-hearted and generous, um, especially when you move out of the tourist areas. Um, most people are hungry to meet other people and and know about your life. They want to know about the world, the greater world, especially the young people, especially the people I'm interested in meeting. They want to know about the greater world. And, you know, obviously 
the experience of a woman, a single woman traveling. And a lot of our friends are single women and they have a different experience. And, and I'm always fascinated to hear their experience and, you know, personal safety is far and away the most important thing. You know, you never want to risk your own personal safety. You want to err on the side of caution. But at the same time, I do think when it comes to all these issues, this, this is probably a more accessible life than most people think. Because as I said, I'm not a big risk taker. I'm not into risk and I'm not into danger. And I have not felt, I feel more relaxed, you know, when you do your d- due diligence and, you know, I'm, I'm with Michael and I have my friends, but I feel safer here than I do in the United States in most cases. Um, and I think that's probably true. Again, do your due diligence, talk to the people who know, but I think the world is a pretty friendly, welcoming place, um, you know, in, under the right circumstances. What's your take? I would say the same thing. I mean, we were just doing our workout in a local park oh, yeah. and we do a little uh, hit workout. We don't have a gym we can go to right now and hit is high intensity interval training. <laughs> and I was jumping jump rope on the sidewalk in the park and these uh, three older Turkish women came walking by and one of them stopped. They've all stopped and watched me for a second. And then one of them sort of motioned if she could have the jump rope. <laughs> and I was like, well, sure. And I handed her the jump rope. And she started jumping rope for a minute and she spoke no English. And I speak about three words of Turkish. And yet we had this little moment of friendly connection, which she was done. I, I gave her a round of applause and, you know, they all laughed and went on their <laughs> way. So we had this little moment of, of connection that was, that was really nice. The, they're also next to Mike. While Michael was doing that, I was doing, you know, they have the exercise equipment in the park. And I, we've gone there three or four times now. And every time there are Muslim women, you know, in the full, there's, even though I've seen them in the full burqa, which, you know, is a whole separate conversation. You know, that's, uh, I think there is an oppression element, but I don't want to impose my values or anything. But there are these Muslim women in the full thing and sometimes just the hijab. And, and, and yet they're on these exercise equipments. And I love the contrast. And I, you know, I, I smile at them and they smile at me and we're sharing a connection. You know, it's like she's working out and I'm working out right next to each other. And probably a lot of things we don't understand about each other and each other's cultures, but we both work out and she's taking joy in it and I'm taking joy in it and I'm taking joy in her joy and vice versa. And it is a nice moment of, you know, we all see a Muslim, a traditional Muslim woman, and we have an emotional reaction. You know, that's a, that's an emotional thing for everybody. Um, but ultimately, who cares? She's a human being and she's expressed, she's experiencing joy and I'm experiencing joy and we're both sweating and we're both working out. And that's a lovely thing. And, and that is, I think that's going to solve more problems than any sort of essay on medium. You know what I mean? Just work out next to a Muslim woman in the park. I think that's making the world a better place. Yeah. I love that. I think, I think you're right. You be part of the change. And as cheesy as that sounds, that's, Mm-hmm. You know, that that type of experience is, is, is what's going to do that. I mean, you mentioned that you um, undertake quite a lot of due diligence. Are there any particular websites or resources that, that you use to do that? Well, we there's all kinds of digital nomad websites. Um, just Google digital nomads and you'll find all kinds of different groups. And in fact, you'll find a group for almost every city that you want to go to. Um, so I will plug in whatever city we're looking at. Uh, Facebook is actually really helpful. Facebook groups. Um, I will join, you know, when we're in Puerto Vallarta, I joined Puerto Vallarta Digital Nomads um, in Istanbul. I joined Istanbul Digital Nomads. And there's a whole network of people there that you can immediately uh, plug into and, and start asking questions. And people will give you references and guides and suggestions and recommendations. Um, and once you're part of the digital nomad community, 
you kind of know you're one, one degree away from everybody and you ask your friends questions and they'll say, oh, if I don't know the answer to that, yeah. they'll say, oh, I know Tom was just in, in Athens and he loved it and he's got this neighborhood. Mm. And we actually, you know, are resources for all kinds of people who will say, oh, we want to find a place in Turkey. And well, now we know a great way to find a place in Turkey. And so that's another way of doing it. For the gay part, um, again, I will, I will go to different gay rights organizations. I'll Google um, you know, Turkey gay rights and find the gay rights group and read what they have to say, um, you know, their guides to it. So there's a lot of different resources, just, you know, a click away. But what, what Michael said, so before we started doing this, one of the big questions we had was, are we going to be lonely? We were really worried about being lonely. It's like, because again, you think of it like being on holiday. How, how do you meet people? I, we're not, we're going to be, it's just going to be the two of us in our apartment. And that's going to be really weird. Of course, we quickly discovered a, a vibrant nomad expat, expat community that it's a little bit like that first year of university or college that everybody is so open to meeting people because everybody is in an unfamiliar city. And people, plus this sort of attracts the kind of person that is open hearted and, and open and generous. And so it's so easy to meet people. Um, and, and so you meet people and then we have made a point to rendezvous with people in subsequent cities and then of course we also meet local people because i mean it sounds funny but as as exotic as this is to us we are to them so they want to get to know us too what's life in america you know all they know is what they see on tv and 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 so there's this there's this meeting of, of, of minds and the irony is leaving seattle realized wow i think we were really lonely back in seattle but i didn't know it and and uh, now we're sort of, I, I mean, we've been in Istanbul three weeks, we've been in our new apartment one week, and we have a, something to do for the next six nights. And we've only been here a week. It's like, how did we meet all these people? And, and it's like, well, you meet some, somebody on Instagram, and they introduce you to somebody else. And there's always somebody traveling through town. And then, you know, you meet your neighbor. And, you know, then you meet the, the shopkeeper. And, and suddenly you're, you're tapped in. And, and I think, you know, America, especially, I don't know what things are like in the UK, but America is, in a lot of ways, the cities are really hostile to community. And I think that has to do with, you know, cars and suburbanization and corporations and all of that. But it's become really hard for people to connect. And I think there's sort of a um, chronic depression and anxiety and loneliness and alienation in America that isn't, that's much less true in Europe. And that definitely isn't true in the nomad community, you know, that people are out in the world and experiencing other people. And even for Michael and I both consider ourselves introverts, me much more so than him, even for somebody like me, you know, it's like, I have a place I can go. We have an apartment. I have my own personal space. But at the same time, I'm not going to pass up, you know, going to the hookah bar or going going to the sidewalk cafe for a different restaurant because they found a great you know, kebab place, you know, I'm not going to pass that up. I'm not a fool, especially, you know, the price from our point of view is so much cheaper than back in America. And, and that's the big irony. So we are so much more tapped in, but anyway, that is, that's the huge resource. Once you are tapped in, which is so easy to get into, everybody wants to help you and connect with you. And once you do that, then you really have eyes and ears all over the world telling you X, Y, and Z. And if they don't know the answer, they know somebody who does. Um, and to give uh, listeners something a little more concrete, for somebody who's just starting out, there is a really good site called nomadlist.com, and they have pretty much every city around the world where there are digital nomads now, and it's just real quick information about 
the average monthly cost of living, uh, what the Wi-Fi speed is like, um, what airfare is to get there, all kinds of, and I think they even have LGBTQ ratings and safety for women so that you can go there mm -hmm. and get a little snapshot. So if you're not, you know, if you haven't started yet, you're not plugged in, you don't have those resources. So I would check out Nomad List and then I would pick a city and I would join a Facebook group for that city. And, and I think Instagram, but I think you want to avoid like the Instagram people with 400,000 followers because they're going to be inundated with people with questions. But if there's somebody with 4,000 followers and they're a nomad and they're in the city where you want to be, that can be a resource Absolutely. too. Absolutely, yeah, social media. Mm -hmm. Whilst we're on the, on the subject of Instagram, I'd like to talk to you both about your Instagram. It's um, It makes me chuckle. It really does. Um, so we'll find you on Instagram at Brent and Michael are going places. Um, I mean, one, your feed is stunning. Your photographs are fantastic. But I love these little bits that you do. Um, <laughs> there was the one that I read about um, about Blondie and and it just, it made me smile. Tell us a bit more about, about your Instagram and, and what your approach is. So that, that Instagram is mostly Michael's doing. I think it's the, the uh, is it the id? It's the, the uh, subconscious part of my brain expressing itself. I don't know where those things came from. One of the things you're referring to is I will do these made up dialogues between Brent and myself. And they're often, uh, I'll use song lyrics that somehow reflect whatever the picture is about. And I tend to be a little zany and go off on these crazy tangents. And, and Brent is the straight man to my uh my wacky going on where i i'll do these humorous dialogues usually at my expense well the rule <laughs> the rule that i've laid down is you can joke all you want but you be the joke don't yeah. don't don't make fun of me don't <laughs> you're the you're the object of the joke but he's done a great job with the photography and he's you know it's a little disconcerting because every week now every month now he wants a new piece of equipment <laughs> and uh, it's like okay but you have to carry it um, but anyway, he's done a great job. I do try and alternate the the funny stuff with the more serious stuff. I, I want it mm -hmm. to be, um, I'm, I'm a writer by heart. I mean, you know, coming to Instagram was something we started to do because we started traveling and I started taking pictures and I, I realized that we like it. And so for me, there's been a real joy in combining taking the pictures, which I love doing. I love going out and, and you know, going places where there aren't other people and trying to capture a unique image. But then I love using my love of words to either entertain people or to teach them something um, that they might not have known about the, the places that they've been and something that I've learned. It's not like I'm out here saying, you know, look at me, I've got all these things to, to teach you. This is it's more come along the journey as I discover these things myself and I share with you. And there's there's a lot of bad things about social media. Absolutely. And there can be a lot of bad things about Instagram. But I think if you're if you're touching the right part of the elephant, so to speak, from that old fable, um, there's a lot of wonderful things that you can you can connect with like-minded people. Um, you can share things that that you know, hopefully bring joy to you and joy to them as well. Now, I think you guys mentioned that you'd got a newsletter. Is that something just a new launched, newly launched? Yeah, launch? about two months ago, we started a regular newsletter, which uh, for the time being is free. So once or twice a week, you'll get uh, sort of updates on our lives and also our thoughts and perspectives, travel tips and uh, longer think pieces on the world around us. Um, and I mean, I don't, I guess I want to be modest, but we're professional writers and we're devoting a lot of time and energy to this. And uh, so we think it's a pretty good product. And mm -hmm. we followed, uh, we started following a lot of other newsletters. Um, and there are a lot, I, let me just say there are a lot of bad ones out there. <laughs> Um, but we're not just throwing this together. This is our, this is sort of a long-term project. So I would encourage people to check us out at substack.com. Brent and Michael are going places. 
perfect we'll pop that in the show notes as well so if anyone is interested then um yeah all the links will be below i mean so so tell us where can we look forward to seeing you take your adventures for, for the rest of <laughs> you know it's always in flux it's always in flux but we do know we're meeting <laughs> friends in, in croatia and split in the fall and we may be wintering with other friends in the canary islands you know january and february um those are like always this is in, in the distance but we we are probably heading from here we're probably heading north through Bucharest into Transylvania. We'll probably be there for a month. We want to work our way up to Budapest. We want to work our way over to Sarajevo. We might go to Athens. Um, and then, like I said, what we want to end up in Croatia in the fall. I, I may have a movie shoot back in the United States, which is also fun. So, you know, I can... <laughs> Hollywood doesn't always treat screenwriters so great. And by that, I mean, they don't always pay for the writer to be on set. But if I'm, you know, I can go anywhere. Uh, and I'm if I'm paying my rent anywhere, sometimes they pay, sometimes they don't. But uh, so I may be in, in Georgia for the fall for a movie shoot. Um, and that's great. You know, I, I love to be there when I can. Um, and, and, you know, but the part of the fun part is going sort of, um what's the name of town in, in romania sibiu sibiu you know i had never even heard of this place and somebody said oh you know two weeks ago um we were going to go to athens next i think and somebody said oh this little town in, in romania transylvania looks really cool and i'm looking up it's like it really does look great let's go there and and then you know doing a little bit of research there's a night train from istanbul to bucharest you know and you get off you have to in the middle of the night, you get off the train, go to the border, get get get, get your passport stamped. You know, going into uh, crossing into Bulgaria, and and then I mean, it just sounds so romantic. So we get a little get a little sleeping car for forty euros or whatever. Spend a couple of days in Bucharest, go up into Transylvania. Um, at some point, we want to, like I said, go to Budapest and see the beautiful hot springs there. And yeah, definitely, there's a highway called the Transfagarian Highway, I think. Mm-hmm. And it runs uh, Transylvania down to Bucharest, Ooh. and it if you if you can hire a hire a car, then it's probably going to be one of the best three hours of your life. It's just amazing, absolutely amazing road. Pa- apparently, the best driving road in the world. Oh, okay. See, there you go. If we hadn't already been going there, if you'd said that, that would have been okay. Let's go there. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll um, we'll have to talk later and you can tell us about that pad thai restaurant in uh, yes, there right. <laughs> brilliant oh michael brent thank you so much for your time we've had such a, a lovely time speaking with you um as i mentioned we'll put all of all the links to social media and their newsletter below um i'm sure you'd be happy for people to reach out if they have any questions for you maybe? absolutely absolutely yep. Yep. Respond yep. to everybody yep direct messages uh drop us an email whatever you want to do we're an open book and thank you so much this is great Oh, we've loved chatting with you. Thank you guys so much, and um, and yeah, hopefully we'll we'll see you somewhere on the road. Absolutely, yes. Maybe, let's be Croatia. Let's have dinner. We will have drinks. We will have dinner in some lovely little seaside cafe. Oh, I love Brent and Michael so much. I had such a good time chatting to them. Um, just a lovely, lovely couple, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Real, real nice and great stories. And you can tell that they're both story writers because of yes. the way they tell a story. Yeah, um, it's really cool really cool and I think what was and it's a theme we're starting to see now through is that we record more episodes with more guests is 
as you know, why people choose to, to change their lives and, and do things a little bit sideways. Do you like that, Al? Mm-hmm. Right on brand. Um, is that is that significant life event? You know, for them, it was the it was the 2016 US election. For us, it was a 2016 Brexit vote. Mm-hmm. We've spoken to other people that have had similar similar decisions in, in that type of political environment. People have been made redundant. Um, and I think it's just such a positive way to respond to something that is actually a bit shit. Mm. Is to go, do you know what? I can change this. And although I can't control the, the wider environment, I can control my little world. And I think that gives you a little bit of power. And, and I think that's the secret to, to living life differently, isn't it? Yeah, I think you're, um, there's a lot of people who worry about the stuff that they can't control and then don't spend any time on the stuff they can control. And these guys have proven that they can't control who the president is, but they can control where they live. Um, and uh, and I think if you're listening at home and you're, and you're thinking that your life isn't exactly how it wants to be, don't stress about the big things that you can't control. Don't stress about if you're in the UK that Boris is the prime minister or anything like that, because you're not going to be able to change that. All you can do is change which country you live in or um, how you look at things or um, what adventures you start. Well, and I think that's the thing, isn't it? Is it's it sound, might sound a bit brutal, but no one's coming. Mm-hmm. No one's coming to save you. Mm-hmm. No one's coming to change your life. It's it's down to you, and that's scary, but that's also really powerful. And and yeah, just just do it. Go for it. Listen back to some episodes. Get some inspiration from other people, because I guarantee you, not one of those people were lucky. Fuck mm-hmm. luck. Absolutely. In fact, a lot of them were unlucky. And they turned it around. Yeah, to exactly. So you'll see, probably from, from now on, uh, you'll see our Instagram posts and a lot of things will be using the hashtag fuck luck. Yeah. And if, and if you have a similar story, mm-hmm. uh, then please hashtag us, tag us in um, with the hashtag fuck luck, our Instagram, a side of his life, because we want to hear about it. We want to chat do. to you. And you could be you could be our next guest. You could. We'd love that. That'd be great. That would be great. So I think, I think is, it, is it time to call it? Because I'm not being funny, Al. It's nearly four o'clock. The sun is shining and, and the wine is calling. Yeah, I think we should. <laughs> cool. So if you want to find out a bit more about Brent and Michael, you can check out their Instagram, which is Brent and Michael are going places, which, by the way, is so flipping funny. Mm-hmm. You'll notice there's some posts where there's like this little like transcript conversation between Michael and Brent and I've laughed out loud at so many of them so you'll enjoy that also incredible content in terms of pictures they have some great IGTV stuff as well with the people that they interview um and yeah their stories show exactly what's going on in their lives every day so follow that they also have a newsletter a website we'll put all of that information in the show notes below um so go check them out and as always they'd love to hear from anybody who is in a similar situation who would like to be in that situation um get in touch they would absolutely love to hear from you okay so i think that's all for today we're looking forward to our next guest which is do you remember we're talking to expat pat next week what name isn't it the best name expat pat his name is patrick but you know do you think he changed his name for expat pat do you know what if he did it's still a genius idea so yeah no pat's pat's cool pat is uh currently living in in seoul south korea so if you fancy hearing about that then uh tune in next week definitely all right, guys. Well, well, that's us for that's it for now, and uh, we're going to go and pour ourselves a nice cold glass of Malvasia, which is the wine of Istria, and sit in the sun and look at the flowers. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>